Our scripture reading this afternoon begins uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4. We read the verses 15 to 20, and our words of scripture this afternoon are the basis for what we confess in Lord's Day 35. First reading from scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15 to 20. Where Moses instructs God's people as they are about to enter the promised land, take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. And then to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John, we read from John chapter 4, verse 21 to 26, and here we meet the Lord Jesus meeting up with a woman at Jacob's well, the woman of Samaria, and speaking to her of the fact that he alone can give her living water. You, you know the story. We read in John 4, at verse 21 to verse 24, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And lastly, from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul's uh, charge to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Thus far we read from God's holy word. Turn also to Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day, 35 in the back of your books of praise where we consider this afternoon God's teaching concerning the second commandment and we carry on in our sequence through the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 35 question and answer 96 asks us what does God require in the second commandment that we are not to make any image of God in any way nor are we to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. 
May we then not make any image at all? Well, God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity, that is to say, books for the people. No, we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, eh, images that can't speak, but by the living preaching of his word. And so the second commandment we're dealing with, please flip back uh, to page 550 where we have the Ten Commandments introduced for us and let us read together the uh, second commandment where we read from the words from Moses, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, so far we read. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, it is only in the second commandment of, of those ten commandments that we find it written that God is a jealous God, a jealous God. It reveals something of God's own heart to us and how serious he is and how absolutely essential it is for us to keep this second commandment. All the others, of course, too, but especially this second in view of the fact that God calls himself a jealous God. He indeed is a faithful uh, husband to Israel, and he will not, if anyone else, become a rival to him to rob our love away from him. He's very jealous of our love. He wants our love entirely, 100%. And uh, all our affection and devotion must go heavenward to the God of heaven and earth. And it's because that we would make an image of God and worship God through some image or through some other format that would uh, very greatly hamper our relationship with God, perhaps even ruin it, and not to mention the fact that we would corrupt our own understanding of God. He is so very jealous of our love and that we know Him and carry on in our relationship of life with Him in a way that shows He's exclusively ours. We must remember that the first four commandments prescribe God's relationship to his people, what that relationship all consists of. We know it is a relationship that begins with the true faith in our God and Father and through our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. It's a relationship in which we express our love to God, our, our pleasure to be in God's house, to be in his midst a relationship of our obedience towards him because he saved us from our sins, a relationship in which we live with reverence before God because he brought his people out of Egypt. He brought us too out of the bondage of our sin 
that we should become his people, his redeemed bride, and he, our heavenly father, he, our faithful husband. In the second commandment, the Lord commands his people the right worship of his holy name. And thus our theme this afternoon, he commands us to worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, how we worship God is as crucial as to who we worship. Both are of equal uh, necessity and, uh, to be, and to be made sure that we get it right on both counts with regard to both commandments. And that explains Jesus' very careful instruction to the woman at the well that he met, that woman from Samaria, when he told that woman that he was the living water, and if she should drink the water that he would have to give, why, she would never thirst again, but would well up in her springs of water unto everlasting life. Jesus had some very important words to say to her and to us. Uh, when we read it, John 4:23, he says, But the hour is coming, the hour now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must, not an option, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That is to say, with their very own spirits, instructed, informed, enabled to engage God and to engage His Spirit so that our spirit is in effect uh, connected with His Spirit so that we, in essence, are in communion with one another to worship God in spirit with our hearts and, of course, in truth. How is that? Well, only when it's in accordance with God's holy word. And this is what this woman had to know. She didn't understand these things at first, so Jesus had to instruct her. And it was to that end that she would become a faithful, a faithful child of God and experience a salvation that was in Jesus Christ too. But even something more, more uh, in a sense, more important, that she would become a worshiper of God. That was the, the critical thing. And therefore, that too is the most important thing we could ever do, and that is to worship God. Can you imagine if you lived a happy life, had everything all together, but you were not a worshiper of God? You would totally miss the boat in life entirely if you were not a worshiper of the one true and living God. And, and that is what is at the heart of this commandment, that we know how to do that in spirit and in truth. In truth in a way in which we express our love rightly and we show our praise correctly and we obey him in gratitude and we bring our gifts of gratitude with the right spirit. Indeed, that we worship him correctly. And this, of course, he commands us in his word so that we're not left guessing, well, how do we actually worship this God in the best way? No, we don't have to guess. As our theme suggests, we are commanded to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that means, therefore, in the first place, that God forbids our making any images of Him to worship Him by. This is straight from the Heidelberg Catechism's teaching, Lord's Day 35, question 96. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make 
any image of God in any way, no way, no kind of image, nor to worship him in any other manner than what he has commanded in his word. There are several negatives in this particular answer regarding how we worship God, and that just dovetails so nicely with the second commandment upon which it is based when Moses said, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There we hear that word again, that word jealous. He is a jealous God. He wants our hearts totally uh, to be his. Now, throughout the Old Testament dispensation, we know that God used many types of shadows and forms and types in order to convey divine truth to his people, reveal himself. We think of the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, or we think of the priest with all his vestments on. We think of Moses' rod and so forth, all images that were used to convey God's authority and presence and truth. But at no time did God ever permit any symbol or image or representation to be made of himself. You see, that's an entirely different thing than talking about Moses' rod or the manna that the people would eat off the desert floor. And the reason why the people were forbidden to make an image or representation of God is for one basic obvious reason that God has no form. He has no objective shape so that you can size him or be able to put him in some kind of a container and have a look at him or box him in. He has no shape that we could copy and then say, give a facsimile of that to someone else and say, well, here's what God looks like. This is who he is. This is how you can get to know him better. No, no, not at all. Though he used physical phenomena to let Israel know that he was near them. For example, when they came to Mount Sinai, they saw the mountain trembling and shaking from the earthquake. And they saw the thick cloud and the darkness and the thick smoke. And they saw the lightning and heard the thunder, all to tell them God was very near to them. But yet they did not see him because he had no form. He was very near, to be sure. But they saw no form. He had none, just like Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria. God is spirit. God is spirit. And so Moses, as God's faithful servant, had to relay these very careful instructions to the Israelites in this regard. He says there in Deuteronomy 4.15, he says, Take careful heed to yourselves. Like, you people watch very carefully. Don't mess this up. He says, For you saw no forum when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or a female, for example, or the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or even the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, or the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, 
the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. God here kind of covers all the bases and says, not like any of these creatures on earth may you make a form of to represent me. Nor, he says, verse 19, and take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and you feel driven to worship them and to serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage, sun, moon, and stars, God gave to everybody as a heritage for, for everybody to enjoy and to receive the blessings from. But please don't make an image of me by making a picture of me by making a star or, a, or the sun or the moon. Because that's not me. You cannot coalesce me down into the shape even of the biggest blazing star in the universe. I'm not near that at all. I am the creator of these things. Because no creature could accurately represent God, no image was ever allowed to be made, no form could ever be shaped with hands to represent Him so that Israel might know Him better or have assistance in how to worship Him all the better. No way. You see, this was the this was the colossal mistake the Israelites made when they devised the making of a golden calf and thought, isn't this something? Now we can see something of God, the one who brought us out of the land of Egypt. And guess what? They bowed down to that image. It was a heinous sin before God. It was a great offense to God. For you see, when we consider God in His high and holy majesty, is almighty, infinite, glorious, wondrous power and grace. How could he be reduced to something small, to that of a calf, even a golden calf? How could he be reduced to something like the blazing sun in the sky? Or to a great sea monster, whatever kind you want to make. You see, the Egyptians were famous for doing these kinds of things. The Egyptian pagan religion is full of animals and creatures that represent all kinds of gods. But Israel was not allowed to do such a thing. For you see, they would so quickly corrupt the worship of the true God if they sought to worship God like the Egyptians worshipped their gods. And they would so corrupt their relationship with God at the same time. And uh, their faith in God, their understanding of God would come to naught completely. You see, congregation, there's such a small step between the breaking of the second commandment. How quickly it leads people to breaking the first commandment. Who they should worship. And so God, wanting to instruct his people here, he does so for the sake of their very salvation, their very spiritual existence. And so again, we ask the question of the catechism, what does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his holy word. Question 97 throws out another, well, maybe this kind of a thing. May we then not make any images at all? 
while God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way, creatures certainly may be portrayed. We can draw pictures of animals, of people, make statues. doesn't matter as long as it's only of people or things. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or to have any image, images of them, those creatures, in order to worship them or to serve God through them. And that's the idea of the catechism. It doesn't want us to use any images to worship God through those images to get a better idea or to enhance a better relationship with God through that vehicle of these images. That's what the nations of the world were so good at doing all the time. But of course their religion, their faith was of course completely false. We simply cannot approach God or worship Him in the way the unbelieving people worship their gods, no matter what those gods look like, whether they're made of wood or stone, whether they're made out of stainless steel, whether they're made out of silver, whether they're plastic, whether they're electronic, it doesn't make any difference at all. God's people may not copy the way the unbelieving people of the world worship their gods. But how then? Well, only as God reveals in his word, question 96 answers, only as he has commanded in his holy word. 300 years before Jesus Christ was born, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, I trust you have heard of that man before, Aristotle, one of the great pagan Greek philosophers, he said this, he says, such as men wish their gods to be, so they make them. Isn't that an interesting observation of a pagan philosopher? Such as men wish their gods to be, so they make them. And guess what? Then that's how they worship, them, worship their gods too. That's how they bow down to them as well, according to the way they've made them, according to their own convenience, according to their own fancy. And that's why they can use their gods the way they do and bow down to their gods the way they wish. It sounds like a pretty nice, easy kind of user-friendly religion. You can make your god as you wish. You can worship as you wish. You can use him as you wish, all for your own selfish little self, bowing down to your creation of your God. Well, congregation, this begs the question, how must we then appear before God? How do we keep holy and true our relationship to God and worship him so that he is satisfied with the worship we bring and he is truly glorified. You see, the wrong approach and the wrong method will so severely distort and ruin our understanding of God and distort and ruin all the reverence or the praise that we would have for him. I'll give you an example. I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of people in our society today in the Western world uh, believe that entertainment is a very important part of their life. Would you agree with me? I think that would be a true statement. People live to be entertained. On their time off, they want to be entertained. 
And of course, their entertainment, whether it's sports, whether it's music, whether it's whatever you want to fill in the box, that entertainment is supposed to be fun, it's supposed to be a nice thing to do, it's supposed to be safe, and the bottom line, to make us all feel good. Good about ourselves, happy, make us laugh, whatever. Entertainment is a billion dollar industry and then some. And it really has become a god in our society today. It has such a tremendous influence on people, on how they use their time, on how they go about their life, determining how they think, how they dress, how they act, how they behave, and what they ought to live for. The entertainment stars, eh? The, the great men and women of the world who dazzle and impress and who do all those good things for people. And you know how it is. Well, unknowingly these people serve this God of entertainment. Now, should we maybe take a bit of a hint or a lesson from that and maybe tweak the way we worship our God so that we also give it a good entertainment component or factor or value to it so that God appears maybe all the more attractive to people and that worshiping of God now becomes so much more amusing and simply to make us feel good. Should we plug in whatever entertainment value we can so we can simply applaud when it's all done at the person who's done something for you in the worship service? Should we do all this, these things to make us feel good and to satisfy our own little selves? And in the process, think, guess what? We are worshiping God all the better now, and we have a better understanding of who He is. We can connect with God so much better because of the entertaining way that He is displayed. And uh, we learn from Him. I think you know the answer, don't you? If we import entertainment into the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if we import all that stuff of the world into our worship service and think we can get to know him easier or enjoy him better, why we've so severely violated the second commandment. We violated our worshiping of God in spirit and in truth. And we have broken the second commandment Entertainment and the right worship of God are mutually exclusive sets. Or if we would take, make a new mental image of God. So we turn him into simply a, a nice guy, a user-friendly God who doesn't offend anybody then, too, we have recast, we have reimagined God into a new image that we imagine. And that image of God is just as false as the golden calf also was a false image of God. Just as false, just as horrible as sin in the sight of God. Then we aren't any better than those, those Old Testament Israelites. And what will we do in the process when we have remade God in our own image, thinking this is a good idea, we can get to know him better? We would lose our reverence for God, for we would totally corrupt his own being. 
we would diminish his glory, we would profane his name, we would erode his truth greatly, we would harm our relationship with him, and we would simply be acting corruptly, as Moses said to the Israelites when he warned them, when he said, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, male or female, and we may not remake God in any image that we think is nice and sweet or, or handy or convenient. Oh no. Remember what Aristotle said as men wish their gods to be, so they make them. And their worship will correspond to the gods that they have made. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make any image of God in any way, nor worship Him in any other manner than He has commanded in His Word. And then Lord's Day, I mean question 98, backs that up further with question 98. He says, but may images not be tolerated in the churches? Could we maybe hang some on the walls here, let's say, or dangle something from the ceiling? Can images be tolerated in the churches? Allowed simply as books that might help teach us, the question asks, teach the people. And again, no, for we should not be wiser than God. Isn't that something? How often man tries to be wiser than his own creator. We, we should not be wiser than God, for he wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. In the second place, congregation, we worship God in spirit and in truth as God commands us, as he commands the living preaching of his word in our worship services. That's point number two. Again, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 4 at uh, verse uh, 15. Moses says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Israel here is warned, be very careful what you're going to do. You saw no form when they saw the fire on top of Mount Sinai. You saw no form in the midst of the fire. But what did, they, what, what did they see? What did they hear? They heard a voice. They heard a voice. Whose voice? God's voice directly speaking to them. They could hear his voice as clearly as you can hear mine. In the language they could understand, Jesus, you can understand me. It was that clear, that direct, that simple, that, that black and white, if you will. They heard a voice. The living God spoke to them. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who had come to visit his people in the time of their sinfulness in order to make a covenant with them to save them from their sins. And that he would be their God forever. How does he enter into covenant with them? He speaks. They heard the voice, unmistakably clear. They didn't have to guess. It wasn't a foreign language. They heard it clear as, clear as day. What we read right now in Deuteronomy 4, and as we read throughout all the scriptures, we hear the voice of the living God. We hear the voice of Jesus speak to the Samaritan woman. That's pretty simple too, isn't it? It is. 
and we hear his voice in order to receive his grace and learn of his love and come to grips with his sovereign majesty and power and might and mercy and tenderness and gentleness, his displeasure at sin, his, his perfect justice against humanity, his precious promises unto everlasting life to learn of, to receive from him, so that guess what? <laughs> we don't even have to make an image of him. We don't. Because he reveals himself so perfectly right in his holy word. We don't have to guess. It's right there. He speaks. We must be but humble enough to simply have our ears wide open to listen and with a humble, believing heart to bow down as we hear the voice of God. Congregation, how in the world could we ever learn about God's glory and His fatherly goodness unless it was told us as we hear the Word of God or we read it for ourselves as we open up the Bible? How could we ever obtain God's covenant mercy unless we had His truth-filled Word speak directly to us? Through our hearing, in our reading, it's still God's self-revelation. Self-revelation, whether old or the New Testament. For example, if the Bible never ever included a promise about the coming of the Messiah, how could there ever be a Messiah? If he never spoke of his grace already in the Old Testament, how could there ever be his grace for his Old Testament people? And so we see that the Word of God has got to be proclaimed. It has to. Otherwise, God's grace is basically shut out from, from humanity. And that's why the Old Testament prophets, they preached and they taught through visions and dreams and so forth, where they spoke the Word of God. So often didn't the prophets say, thus says the Lord, and they spoke. And so also Jesus taught in the New Testament. He was first most a preacher of righteousness. That's why he took the time to spend with that woman of Samaria to teach her, to show her. And, 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 and so the apostles, from the example of their master, went out to be preachers and teachers. They were sent, they were commissioned with this very thing. And that remains the vital task of ministers today. The living word of God, with all its instruction, has got to be taught, has got to be preached so that people simply come to the knowledge of salvation, come under conviction of sin, and come to know the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. But there's something more, and I call that the bottom line here, so that they become worshipers of God. Could you be a Christian without being a worshiper of God? You can't. A Christian worships his God in heaven. And he worships him in spirit and in truth. Worshiping God is the most important and the most essential thing a Christian could ever do. If you miss out here, you've totally missed out on the reality and the experience of being a Christian. Again, question 98. 
But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books of the laity? No. We should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb, eh? Something is dumb if it can't speak, can't teach you a thing. Not be taught by dumb images, but by the living preaching of the Word of God. We ought not to think we could be wiser than God by inventing something, bringing something into the worship service, whether it's a nice picture, whether it's a poster board, whether it's the latest new movie that's trying to depict something of the life of Christ or some biblical event. We may not import these things into the worship service in order to know God better or worship Him more meaningfully. But rely on one thing what God designed and he gave to his church. The preaching, the living preaching of the living word of God. For you see, congregation, a most essential part of the worship of God that you participate in every worship service is simply hearing and listening to the Word of God preached, then you are participating in a vital component of every worship service. It's got to be there, and you've got to be there with ears wide open and hearts wide open to receive the truth of God Himself. Then you're worshiping Him in spirit, with your spirit connected, engaged with His as His dwells in you, and you hear His word come from Him through the mouth of His, his servants. And this lies at the very heart and soul of the second commandment. It's the very thing that Paul instructed Timothy in, that young man who was just starting out to be a faithful minister in the Church of Christ, Paul wrote, I charge you therefore, beloved, or sorry, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? He's going to come to judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. In other words, Timothy, do you realize what's, what's coming? The God of the living, Jesus Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. In other words, you better get, get preaching once you are charged to go because Christ is coming and you're doing this before, the, before, the, before God himself, he says, I charge you. He says in verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, at all times. Convince, rebuke, exhort. How? With long-suffering, with patience, and with straightforward teaching. Timothy was solemnly charged. He was commissioned with the word of God entrusted to him by God to preach it. Timothy was under orders by his commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jesus himself was for, for, for foremost a preacher and a teacher, so Timothy had to be exactly the same kind of person with the same kind of spiritual vocation to preach the word of God for the life of God's people and for all who would hear him. 
Timothy could not try to be wiser than God himself and invent some other technique. No, he couldn't. But what he was given, that he was called upon to utilize. Not being wiser than God, not wanting to be taught by dumb images, but by the living preaching of the Word of God. And as we hear that Word of God, congregation, as we, as we come under conviction, as we get convinced about our sin, as we hear the rebuke of God on account of our sin, as we are exhorted, it means God beseeches us, He earnestly comes to us, and He calls upon us to believe, and He commands us to repent of our sin. This is serious stuff. And He commands us to commit our life to Jesus Christ entirely. That's what this exhortation and teaching and convincing comes down to, so that we would know our sin. We would all the more know our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. We would then also come under a conviction of committing our lives to Christ entirely in terms of a life of service. Eh? Christ is to be followed. We are to take up His cross and follow Him. That takes a lot of hard effort and determination and purposefulness of living as we sacrifice ourselves to God as living sacrifices unto Him and, and so forth. This is what Timothy had to preach. Why? So that we not only become worshipers of God, but we always remain. And that's very important too. How many people don't start right and they finish lousy? They start out with what seems like is having faith. And then they burn out and then they go astray and they forget the God who first covenanted with them. To not only become a worshiper, but to remain faithful worshiper of God, worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, according to His holy word. How often? Well, week after week after week after week, all the days of your life. How often? Every Sabbath day. Why so? God has commanded it. Every week, you commit your life again to God in faithful worship. I call this the obedience of the faith and the love of our faith that we owe to God. Sure, it comes as a command, but may it come from our hearts as a response of overflowing love and gratitude to Him. It's the, it's the debt of gratitude we owe to God when you consider and think, wow, what has He not done for me? I was on the road to everlasting hell. I'm now coming to the edge of eternity and will soon enter into His heavenly glory. His heavenly glory. Then surely His commands are worth keeping, aren't they? As, as signs of our commitment to our God, that we love Him exceedingly, that He is our God. And we are, we are His children by grace. Amen.